You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured, episode 101. In this edition, we're hopping over to the other side of the pond to speak with Irish journalist Ronan Burtonshaw, speaking about contemporary Irish politics and why the Irish workers of today are still fighting for the republic promised with the Easter Rising of 1916. And we are pleased to announce that we have an extra special gift for our belabored sustaining members. If you are interested in making a small monthly donation to help us continue our work here at Belabored, please stay tuned for a special message at the end of the show where you can find out more or you can go straight to DescentMagazine.org to donate online. And now the news. This Wednesday, around 40,000 workers at Verizon Wireline and Wireless began a strike after some nine months of negotiations with the wildly profitable company broke down. Last year, Verizon earned $18 billion in profits, and it is profiting at about $1.8 billion a month so far this year. It also spent $13 billion last year in buying back its stock rather than paying its workers more, and now it is trying to drop $35 billion buying Yahoo!, And yet, the company's argument has been the same since the last time the workers went on strike in 2011, right at the beginning of Occupy Wall Street. It argues that the landline workers are less profitable, and meanwhile is of course trying to keep the wireless workers, who it admits make the company most of its money, away from unions at all. As they fight outsourcing and cuts and demand that the company invest in expanding its high-tech Fios network, the workers were also joined by presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. I spent a bit of time on the picket line with some of the workers myself on Wednesday. Um, They are members of the Communications Workers of America and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, respectively. And I spoke with a couple of wireless employees who were part of the strike for the very first time. I'm Tatiana Hill. I am a Verizon Wireless sales representative. I work in Brooklyn in Kings Highway location. And my name is Bianca Cunningham. I'm a fired Verizon Wireless worker from Bensonhurst location, now CWA organizer. All right. Um, So tell me, um, first of all, we haven't heard that much about the fact that the wireless workers are also on strike. So tell us about um, what's going on in wireless that that has you guys out today. So this is the first time wireless has actually joined the strike movement. Normally, Landline has um, been on strike for several years in the past. That's their history. Mm -hmm. We, as Wireless, recently joined CWA. Um, We decided to have a union. We voted and won in uh, May 2014. Yeah. So now we are officially CWA union members as well, which is a first for the company. And then following us was Everett, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So they have one store location that is a union-based store. So now we, this is the first time they're legally able to picket Verizon Wireless stores all over mm-hmm. the country, from Maine down to Virginia. All right. Which is amazing, yeah. All right. Um, so tell me about your story. You said you were fired and now a... Yes. So I basically, like she said, we ratified our, or we elected the union in May 2014. Mm-hmm. And I was on the bargaining. T- I'm on the bargaining team, and also like a like a chief person in, uh, for the union for the group in Brooklyn. Yes. In August of 2000, and, well, in May of 2015, I advised a coworker who was feeling uncomfortable with a male manager that mm-hmm. she should leave if she feels uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And they said that I was acting as a manager and also withheld information because I refused to let them search my records. And so, in August of 2015, they fired me. We did file uh, unfair labor practice with the labor board. Mm-hmm. They ruled 
in our decision. The company appealed it. We went before an administrative law judge. We're now waiting on that decision. So basically, this is two years of bargaining a contract, them essentially trying to get rid of me to scare people and get rid of other people, bully people, and they just refuse to recognize the fact that we did vote the union in. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what are the main issues that you guys are um, bargaining over in the contract that they are not? We want just cause. We want... Um, grievance and arbitration. Grievance arbitration. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, we feel like we, we want, want limited management rights. Mm-hmm. Our management has excessive amounts of freedom and flexibility on how they govern us. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning, store managers up to company DMs, yeah. which are district managers as well. That has changed the um, environment in a lot of our store locations to where you feel like you work for a totally different company mm-hmm. in different stores, and they have the freedom to move you if and when they please yeah. at any given time. So your life can literally change and uproot, especially if you have a family to cater to. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a lot of freedom to change your life around for the better or worse, usually worse. A lot of people have been complaining over the years how it's affected them negatively. So we want to limit that. Um, also, the minimum amount of years it takes for a person to get to highest pay for base pay is 17 years. That is a joke. Average companies is five to six years. So a lot of loyal Verizon Wireless people have been given their efforts and time to this company and been working really hard over the years and we've made millions of billions of dollars for the company they admit that wireless brings in the majority of their profits and they're not paying us for it at all but they're giving raises to the big guys what else do you want people to know about the, the strike this week we want them to have solidarity like stand behind us um support us don't cross the picket line these are regular working people, which New York is full of. Like, we want you to know that we're just like you. We have families. We're just trying to make a living. We're hard workers. We don't hate our jobs. We don't want to not work. We want to work and have safety and security in that job. We want to be able to build a career if we would like to and have a life that we can rely on this income that we have worked so hard for. And if we work hard for a company, we want to be rewarded for it and appreciated. So we want people to just stand behind us and recognize that and don't support these greedy companies who are taking these millions and billions of your dollars and our life efforts and works and just throwing it away. Now, for the past three years, we've been hearing the cry for $15 an hour minimum wage growing louder and louder, starting with a tiny band of rabble-rousers right here in New York in late 2012, and then spiraling out to protests across dozens and hundreds of cities nationwide, eventually reaching around the globe, Uh, reaching far beyond the original group of workers, fast food workers, and going to encompass a whole swath of the workforce, representing about 40% of American workers who earn less than 15 an hour. And now it seems like things are at least starting to pay off. So last week, both New York and California signed into law two new minimum wage bills, setting both states on a path to reach a $15 hourly minimum wage to be phased in over several years. So it won't really get there for the full state until 2022 in California and about uh, 2021 in New York, but there are many complex caveats to that New York bill. New York City would get it first, and then other parts of the state would be phased in gradually, and there would be some hedging involved, Um, there would be a review period. So it would just be a whole 
kind of messy patchwork. But the idea is that the whole state will get there eventually, and it will uh, altogether affect several million workers. And there are two major pieces of legislation that top a series of minimum wage hikes, uh, some going all the way to $15 an hour, and some uh, falling just short of that, but most of them putting the minimum wage um, in states and cities well above $10. According to the National Employment Law Project, um, all of these uh, wage increases over the past three years um, have affected altogether about 17 million workers across the state, uh, municipalities, and uh, some of the larger companies that have announced um, new minimum wage policies. Of those, about 10 million are getting phased in raises to a full $15. Under those increases of New York and California, uh, the group reports that more than one in three workers um, in both of those states will receive raises of about $4,000 per year once fully phased in. So not chump change. Um, the bad news, of course, is that a lot of these wages are phased in so slowly that inflation will probably take a big chunk out of uh, that $15 when it finally lands. And of course, if you live in a place like New York City, you know that already you can't live really on $15. New York's new law was coupled with some other promising legislation. There's a new bill that authorizes 12 weeks of paid leave time for workers across the state, uh, which makes the state one of the more progressive in the country in terms of offering paid family leave. The other not-so-great news is that um, the other half of the Fight for 15 demand, uh, the right to unionize, of course, has not yet been won, and that is still a matter of litigation, um, and the fight continues at the National Labor Relations Board. But perhaps one of the biggest triumphs of this whole campaign over the past three years has been to really sort of shift the goalpost in terms of how we talk about inequality in this country. It started out as a demand that sounded ridiculous to a lot of people, $15 an hour, more than doubling the federal minimum wage. But roughly 6 in 10 Americans now support a $15 minimum wage, according to a recent survey. And uh, as for a union, Kendall Fells, one of the lead organizers behind the fight for 15 effort, uh, told me shortly after those bills are signed, the labor movement is beginning to look different with all these industries of workers coming together to create broader change. And he adds that in terms of winning the legal right to uh, form a union without retaliation at their job, he says there are various paths to getting a union, but the best way to get a union is acting like you already have a union. So some workers are already starting to do just that. And I went to the most recent spate of Fight for 15 protests here in New York City, and I went to Times Square, which was, of course, the ground zero of the original campaign. And uh, here are some sounds from that rally. And uh, what's your name again, sir? Uh, Jamal Tauber. And you work at the Midtown McDonald's? Yes. And how old are you, sir? Uh, 37. 37. Okay, how long have you been a McDonald's worker? Uh, three years. And what do you make now? Now I make 1050. I started right. with 750. All right, all right. So you've been seeing uh, the slow increase. Not enough, though. No, not enough. You'd like to get five, at least five more. What have been some of the changes you've seen since 2012, besides the obvious, you know, they've been getting bigger? Uh, I just see that uh, it's not just New York City. It's all over the country that people are fighting for better wages in this country. So what do you say to people who are like, well, last 
week, New York just signed into law a fifteen dollar minimum wage. What are you guys still out here chanting for? Uh, we are here chanting because of uh, we want a union. Uh, fifteen dollars is great. It's an accomplishment. We're happy for it. But it's not. It's, it's really it's, it, without a union, I really don't think it's gonna be. It's gonna stand strong. We don't have a real backbone because with these corporations and these con uh, uh, companies, they can basically you know delegate how they're gonna give you hours and cut your hours and stuff like that. And with a union, that helps. Right. If you were at the table with McDonald's right now and you were you had union representation, what would you demand at the table? Uh, we would demand a union. We would demand that they, you know, stop trying to cut costs and pay, and, pay, and you know, and pay their taxes as a corporation. Uh, and basically, just just be fair with us. Yeah. Well, um, what about at your job? Do you get enough hours? Do you get the kind of schedule you need? No, I don't. Okay. And so, would that be something that you'd want to see exactly. sort of set set out on paper for you? Exactly. Right. 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 Um, so, do you consider yourselves to be kind of a union already? Not really. Somewhat. I think I feel that we have the momentum, and I feel that um, as we continue to grow and continue to come out here, it's going to even get stronger. So, at your workplace, how many how many workers are with you? Like, how many folks uh, come out with you on strike? Uh, I say about 15, 20. Okay, out of how many? Out of maybe 80 or 100. Okay, so that just said grown. It, it, it has grown. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, what is your uh, what is your boss? Is he gonna be upset with you today? Not really. Right, right. So you're not afraid of what's gonna happen. No. Okay. What do you have to say to folks who are watching the Verizon strikers right now? Are you guys out there in solidarity with them? Exactly. We are, we are here together, um, supporting everybody in, in this movement in this campaign because everybody wants better wages and a better way of living. And um, it basically just says that if you um, if you stand, if you don't stand for, if you don't stand for something, then you fall for anything. Well, good luck to you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. And that was Jamal, a local fast food worker at McDonald's, speaking at the Times Square rally on Thursday. He's been striking since 2012, and sounds like he's not going to be stopping anytime soon. Scott Walker is not going to be president anytime soon, which certainly caused quite a sigh of relief in the labor movement, although Ted Cruz, John Kasich, and Donald Trump are certainly no friends of unions either. In a second blow to workers' least favorite governor, his so-called right-to-work law was struck down by Dane County Circuit Judge William Faust last Friday. For a fresher on the myriad ways Walker has tried to break his state's unions, first came Act 10, which dismantled public sector unions in the state and launched a massive occupation of the state capital by labor and a recall campaign against the governor. Unfortunately, though, despite all of that, Act 10 remains in effect. The governor, after that, pretended that he didn't want to pass what we like to call here at Belabor a no-rights-at-work law that would go after private sector workers, but in news that shocked your podcast hosts not one bit, he was lying. The law was passed in a rush last year over protests that once again shook up the Capitol, though never coming close to the heights that the 2011 actions reached. Attorneys for the Wisconsin AFL-CIO, Machinists Local Lodge 1061, and United Steelworkers District 2 filed a lawsuit arguing that the law violates the Wisconsin state constitution. Essentially, what these no-rights-at-work laws do is attempt to defund unions by allowing workers to avoid paying the cost of representation to the union. Unions are required to bargain on behalf of all workers in the workplace, regardless of whether or not they join and sign up to pay full dues. 
representation costs are smaller than the full dues that worker, that members pay, but they cover the work that the union does on behalf of those non-members. The lawsuit argues that allowing this kind of free riding on the work of the union constitutes an unlawful taking of the union's property without compensation, and the judge agreed. It is unclear what will happen with this in the future, since the state's Supreme Court just had its conservative majority reaffirmed in the recent election. Act 10 was originally struck down by a Dane County judge, but then later upheld. And a similar argument against no rights at work laws ultimately failed in Indiana. It is an interesting road for unions to go down, arguing that their services are essentially property that can be taken, but a certainly understandable attempt to stave off the destruction of their base and the end of the system under which they've operated since the New Deal. Um, For more on the history of no rights at work laws, you can listen to Belabored Episode 72, and of course we will keep you posted on what happens with this story. I reported recently on worker co-ops and the unique role that they're playing in different industries in a number of different countries. A new study assessed the productivity and organizational structures of worker cooperative sectors in North and Latin America and in Europe and found that, contrary to popular stereotype, it's not just a hippie pipe dream. When workers are running their own workplaces, they actually uh, run the thing pretty well. In fact, while many in this country might be skeptical of workers actually controlling their means of production, it turns out that when workers are placed in the management seat, they can, by and large, make pretty productive decisions and manage to perform better than a lot of other corporations, according to this study by Virginia Perotin of Leeds University at the UK. She found that by observing firms in different sectors, in France, uh, in uh, North America, and other countries, um, she found that when you have uh, the leadership of a company coming from the ground up and from the rank and file rather than a top-down hierarchy, management is actually uh, better at making adjustments, um, better at dealing with economic turmoil on the macro level by uh, changing the firm's operations, adapting, and rather than just doing it the quick and dirty way by laying off workers, which is what many uh, budget-crunched companies are likely to do, um, they're more likely to seek to preserve those jobs and make more sustainable long-term changes that they will implement over time, which end up gradually actually being better for business overall. For instance, they might uh, make longer-term adjustments to slow down the yearly expansion rate in order to maintain current assets, Um, And at the same time, keep uh, everyone on staff. They might uh, engage in some kind of work-sharing agreement to prevent mass firings. And a regular corporation might think more in the short term, just start slashing budgets and making unwise decisions. Of course, it's a different story in the U.S. Uh, There's relatively small co-op sector here. But New York and California, uh, they have been implementing legislation and other policies to incentivize co-op creation and get new firms experimenting with the co-op model to see how they can make it work in their own communities. I spoke with Melissa Hoover of the United States Federation of Worker Co-ops Democracy at Work Institute. It's sort of a think tank slash advocacy group slash incubator for co-op projects, and they help seed uh, new co-op ideas and kind of shepherd them towards financial viability. And uh, she talked about why co-ops are increasingly seen as a beneficial alternative model of management, and that's not only benefiting workers, but also consumers who want to make ethical conscious decisions about where they spend their money. Um, They seek an alternative to traditional mega corporations and chain stores. So here's Melissa Hoover. 
we want to make co-ops the new normal. We want to make the worker cooperative form as possible as any other form, um, and which means, you know, creating incentives and advantages within the startup world, you know, around policy and capital, um, and, and then in the conversions world to say this is, you know, as possible, more possible, maybe better than closing or selling to a corporate competitor. Um, and here's how, you know, it's, it's standard, it's possible, it's easy, it's in every economic development office, it's part of all small business um, support systems, there's available capital for it. Um, you know, so we want to, we don't see any reason why this shouldn't be the way that businesses are preserved as the owner retires or the way that um, startups, um, you know, happen. We understand there's a values component to it, and I don't think that that's a disadvantage. So that takes me to my second point. I actually see a competitive advantage in cooperatives, particularly as, um, our world crumbles around us, right? There's environmental crises, there's capital crises. Um, people are starving and homeless in the richest country in the world. And as that begins to filter through the consciousness of, you know, everyday people, and they say, wait, but how do we envision a different system? We know this one isn't working. I think we have a model that we can point to and say, this actually is a system that foregrounds member benefit and community benefit in the form. And it's possible to do economic activity and adhere to a different set of values, a set of values that takes into account all of those things. And I think consumers will find that appealing. We know that consumers find social benefit appealing. Um, and increasingly, you know, the we think investors and entrepreneurs themselves will see like, oh, this is a way, this is a container for my values. Um, that also can support me. And that was Melissa Hoover of United States Federation of Worker Cooperatives Democracy at Work Institute. Regular listeners will note that our schedule was off last week. That is partly so we could bring you our special anniversary episode, but it's also because the week before that I was in Ireland reporting on the 100th anniversary of the Easter Rising. To celebrate that anniversary, Jacobin Magazine has also put together a whole issue on the impact of the rising on the Irish left over the past hundred years. Ronan Burtonshaw is an Irish journalist, former vice chair of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions Youth, and was the guest editor of the Irish issue of Jacobin. I sat down with him while I was in Dublin to discuss the rising, the current state of the Irish labor movement, Irish politics after their recent general election, and the legacy of socialist James Connolly and the Irish Citizen Army. Okay, so let's start out for people who know absolutely nothing about what's going on in Irish politics right now. Um, where are things after the election and why are they this way? So after the election, Ireland, a bit like Spain, has no government. Uh, the two historic dominant parties of Irish politics, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, uh, came in below 50% of the vote between them uh, for the first time. These are parties that traditionally would have got uh, 80 to 85% of the vote through Irish history. Um, in addition, Labour, the partner of Fine Gael in government, the Labour Party, uh, got a hammering, went down from 19% the last time to uh, around 6.6% this time. And uh, we haven't been able to form a government and so the result of that is uh, that there is deep kind of instability in Irish political life. Uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are looking like they're going to have to come up with some sort of an arrangement but struggling to do so. Um, 
and the opening for the left is quite significant. Uh, Sinn Féin didn't do as well as they would have hoped and would have expected. Uh, they got around 14% of the vote, uh, but they definitely increased significantly their share of the vote and their number of seats and elected a lot of good, young, left-wing people. The uh, Trotskyist formations, the anti-austerity alliance and people for profit, came in around 4% of the vote. Um, and did well, uh, got close to getting enough to have speaking rights in Parliament, and a number of left-wing independents were elected as well. Um, the left didn't, it wouldn't be fair to say the left took up the space that had been vacated by the right-wing parties and the pro-austerity parties, um, but it certainly did well while the right-wing and pro-austerity parties retreated. And we're in this kind of standoff period now, waiting to see if the two historic right-wing parties who never have served in government together and who uh, have a an antipathy getting back to the Irish Civil War in the 1920s um, are going to have an entente to form a government or if we're going to be thrown into another election uh, in the next weeks and months. All right. So I feel like in the US we have not talked enough at all about how austerity hit Ireland. Can you give us a, a sort of quick rundown on that and bring us up to the right to change alliance going into this election? So the narrative in Europe was that Ireland was the poster child for austerity, that it had imposed harsh austerity on its population and had recovered and is now growing very fast. Uh, the truth is a lot more complex than that. Austerity has hit Ireland extremely hard. Uh, we have, at the moment, after many years of austerity policies, the largest homeless crisis in the history of the state and a very deep housing crisis which is affecting many of those beyond uh, those who are homeless. We have record numbers of people on trolleys in our hospitals. Uh, we have the highest level of child poverty we've had since the, the numbers began to be recorded. Um, and we still have very, very large uh, numbers of people uh, unemployed and large numbers of those underemployed and in precarious work. In addition to all of this, since the crisis began, uh, over one in ten people have emigrated from Ireland. This historic release valve that Ireland has for uh, periods of social crisis. So 450,000 people or more have, uh, have emigrated since the start of the crisis. Um, and the result of all that is, you know, they made a desert and they called it peace. Uh, they uh, produced very, very harsh austerity measures which radically decreased wages and the standard of living for people here. Um, but they managed to uh, produce some degree of profitability again for Irish businesses. Uh, a lot of the headline numbers you'll see about Ireland being the fastest growing economy in the world and stuff which you're seeing at the moment is, uh, is a nonsense. And it's a nonsense because Irish GDP figures uh, count uh, the huge multinational corporations who are here only for tax purposes. And so in the IFSC, the Financial Services Centre, we have one building in Sir John Rogerson's Quay that has uh, over 1,500 companies uh, have their headquarters in a single building. And these are, you know... Uh, brass plate companies which don't actually have any interaction with the Irish economy but for GDP purposes are counted within uh, within our economy. This gives us growth figures of 7% and so on. The growth figures are nowhere near that. There is a minor recovery happening but the recovery is happening at the same time as all these social crises. Uh, the depth of inequality in Irish society has greatly increased and huge numbers of people are very uh, angry at the uh, political system, the prevailing economy, and the way in which the crisis was uh, was resolved. Uh, so the result of all that in uh, 2014 was the creation of the largest social movement in the history of the Southern Irish state, which is the Water Charges Movement. Um, that movement came largely, I think, unexpected to most of us on the left. 
We knew there was popular anger out there, but never quite the scale that it was. Uh, it produced, in a country uh, of a little over 4 million people, uh, regular demonstrations through 2014 to 2015 that went over 100,000 people. In one case, uh, in November 2014, we got over 200,000 people on sites around the country, which is just enormous for the size of this country. Um, and that continued. It continued into the election. It became a, a really big and dominant feature uh, in the election that the austerity parties had to uh, uh, deal with. And it's one of the reasons why Fine Gael, the lead party of the government's most recent government, got such a whacking uh, on the day, was their uh, insistence on the imposition of these charges uh, and reluctance to yield to that movement. Um, out of that movement came the Right to Water uh, coalition that was founded by uh, left-wing elements in our, in our trade unions. Um, really, they put together the, the broad framework of it. Uh, Unite, the same union that in Britain backs Jeremy Corbyn, the communication workers who are, who are post-office workers, uh, Mandate, which is barn retail workers, uh, Opatsy, um, and the uh, CPSU, uh, Opatsy are pastors, CPSU are lower-ranking civil and public servants. Uh, and there, I think two reasons why they came into it. One is You've got a progressive leadership in a lot of those unions who uh, have left-wing positions. Uh, and the other is that a lot of their members are lower-paid uh, workers in the Irish economy who, who are growing increasingly dissatisfied with uh, not only the attacks on the working class here, but also uh, with uh, the kind of lack of fight from uh, certain elements of the trade union movement who were refusing, or in some cases collaborating with the government, in other cases refusing to resist it. Um, and so they brought a, together kind of an umbrella organization in Right to Water, uh, which came to involve three pillars. One was the trade union pillar, the other was the political pillar, which included all of the left-wing uh, parties, uh, from Sinn Féin, kind of left nationalist party, uh, who uh, are the, the largest force in the Irish left, through to uh, the Trotskyist parties, also the Communist Party, the Workers' Party, and a lot of left independents. Um, and then the community pillar, which is a really interesting one, which was these uh, autonomous, uh, self-organized uh, community groups in working class and rural poor communities across Ireland um, who are resisting on a daily basis the uh, imposition of these meters and who in many cases provided the most uh, militant layers of this movement. Um, and they had various degrees of, of uh, comfort as, uh, in their relationship with those three pillars. Um, it was not an easy path through, but they managed for the life of the social movement anyway to keep Right to Water together and to keep it as a, a vehicle for organising uh, mass demonstrations. Then around the election time, uh, there was an attempt by the, the, the trade union part of Right to Water to put together a common platform for the election um, around policy principles for a progressive government. Uh, these, uh, you know, would have would have put forward a kind of left social democratic program, um, very detailed for uh, for a government. Um, Sinn Féin signed up to it and People Before Profit, one of the Trotskyist groups, signed up to it as well. Anti-Austerity Alliance didn't and a number of the other uh, parties also didn't. Um, and the movement didn't really carry into the election uh, as a unified force in any, in any serious way. Um, what ended up happening was most of the parties ran on their own uh, platforms. Um, there was some degree of unity around the Right to Change uh, platform, which is what it was called. Um, but there wasn't really the energy that, that had come from the social movements. Uh, and now we're in a period of, uh, of reassessment, you know, where does the left go after this election when clearly 
people are saying that they reject that political establishment, they're deeply dissatisfied with it, um, but they haven't endorsed our alternatives. Um, right. That provides us with both an opportunity and a, a, a moment that we should be using to pause for thought. Right. And so, and one of the things that contributed to this kind of alliance forming, right, was the fact that the Labour Party was in government with the right wing party and was part of implementing austerity. Right? Um, so there are still some unions that stayed involved with Labour, that stayed loyal to Labour, but Labour took a, what would you say, a kicking in the uh, yeah, this election? Sure. Yeah, so. Um, we deal with this in the Jacobin issue actually as well, yeah. the history of the Labour Party. Um, the Labour Party in Ireland has been traditionally one of the worst social democratic parties in Europe. It has failed uh, comprehensively to, in the initial phase uh, of its existence, to stand up to the church, uh, which is such a dominant force in, in the, the, uh, the Irish Free State. And then later on to really fight and to build uh, social democratic politics in Ireland. It has consistently been willing to be a partner of the right in government rather than articulating a clear left-wing alternative. This has gone right the way through its history when it's gone into coalition multiple times, usually with Fine Gael, but also occasionally with Fianna Fáil. Um, uh, and, you know, this latest election has shown this uh, policy and its extremists, really, because in, in 2011, the Labour Party at times coming up to that election were actually leading in the polls and had an opportunity to very clearly put forward their alternative for a social democratic Ireland that was going to take on uh, austerity and try and find uh, some kind of a more socially just resolution to the, to the crisis. Um, instead, uh, they left the door open to Fine Gael, they ended up running a bad campaign and they went in with Fine Gael um, after, the, uh, after the 2011 election. They came in on that election in the end with 19%, which was a real historic high for them. It was uh, an excellent uh, performance, even if they didn't manage to get the 30% they were polling at at some points. Um, but they've now come back to getting less than 7% in this election, which is one of their worst results. And they barely scraped enough to have speaking rights in the parliament. Um, in the longer term, the Labour Party are in a real mess because the people who they've returned to this parliament are um, older, more established figures who have strong bases but don't have much of a future in politics. They're going into a discussion now at this very moment about their leadership uh, and the potential candidates that are being put forward are, uh, you know, I would say candidates who are going to have no luck in inspiring the kind of uh, social democratic voters that they, that they used to win over. Um, they're people who are tainted by their association with austerity and also with the, the kind of politics that Fine Gael and Labour and government practiced. Uh, and so the Labour Party is in a, is in a really difficult moment. Um, its choice right now is does it you know, align uh, back to the left and try to kind of deal with the reality that they got hammered because they supported austerity? Uh, or does it uh, go the path of a lot of social democratic parties in Europe, which is to say um, to continue its line of support for the right-wing parties, the kind of neoliberal centre uh, that wants to continue with austerity, continue the attacks on the welfare state, and, uh, and so on. Um, I think it's almost certain it's going to take the latter path and become an appendage of Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, uh, and if it does that, well then, it doesn't have a future. There is no space anymore for this kind of social democracy that's associated with austerity. We see it all over Europe. It's, it's on the retreat, uh, and now it has these enormous... Uh, um, opponents, which it never had historically, even when it was, even when it got bad results in the past in its history, it never had a big left nationalist party like Sinn Féin or the Trotskyists or the left independents who are going to take its vote. So yeah. I think it's on the 
historic decline. Yeah. Um, and so, right, so Sinn Féin picked up a bunch of their working class support, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Why is that significant for people who, well, again, there's a lot of history you have to explain to talk about Sinn Féin, I guess, but, you know. The, the short version of why this was a, a particularly good election for them. Well, it was it was a good election. I would say they were also disappointed by it because yeah. they didn't manage to get the numbers they were getting in the polls for the year leading up to it, which had them at 20% and plus. They ended up getting 14%. Um, it's significant because Sinn Féin, all the way up to the 90s and early 2000s, were essentially a non-entity in, in, uh, in Irish politics. While they were had the active campaign with the IRA in the north, um, they... Uh, they rarely, you know, uh, performed in, I should say, in Irish electoral politics. They, they rarely performed particularly uh, well down here, um, with the exception of a period around the hunger strikes in the early 1980s where they got some people elected to Parliament. Uh, they, they were extremely small. Um, since the Good Friday Agreement um, ended, the, for the moment, the conflict in, in the north, uh, they have grown uh, in, in, the, in the south, in the 26 counties. They have uh, managed to put themselves forward largely as an, as an anti austerity party um, they've got some really strong working class base now in fact they're clearly the largest party in working class communities in Ireland at the moment um, and they've actually managed to also bring in a layer of um, new left wing uh, young members some of whom got elected to the parliament most recently and who are impressive speakers and, and make them a serious uh, force on the anti-austerity left they also have and it should be you know, made clear, I think. They also have real limitations, um, and it's going to be interesting to see how they manage to, uh, to, to overcome those. In the north, uh, where Sinn Féin is in government with the GUP, they're imposing austerity um, in, a, in a way that you know, would be unacceptable if it was to be done in the south. Uh, they do have limited powers up there, but there's real questions about the degree of re resistance they put up to the Tory government. Uh, and they also have a, a long-term project which focuses on the reunification of Ireland, um, almost to the exclusion of the question of exactly how that's going to happen. Uh, and there's real queries, I think, about whether Sinn Féin will um, focus on the reunification, getting into government north and south, and uh, getting a referendum on reunification um, without uh, putting enough questions on you know, how th this new Ireland is going to take shape, the social questions, the economic questions uh, to it. So uh, they are now the biggest force on the Irish left, uh, and we have to see what, the, what uh, that means in terms of cooperation with other elements of the left and the potential to produce a left-wing government in the future. For the moment, they're on 14% uh, support, which is a historic high for them, but uh, nowhere near what they would need to lead a government. We are in the land of Donald Trump, of course, in this podcast. Um, so when we've seen these horrific right-wing nationalist movements popping up everywhere, in, in certainly in countries hit hard by austerity, but also in, in Germany and places that have been imposing austerity on other people. And so you don't have that kind of comparable right-wing growth here. Um, talk about why that is and why, you know... Who gets credit for, for that being uh, not as big a deal here? Yeah, Ireland has a... There's a few reasons, I think, why Ireland has managed to avoid a serious far-right force. Um, 
One is the nature of Irish nationalism. So obviously Sinn Féin at the moment are the leading forces really in terms of talking about the national question. And they align themselves very clearly with anti-colonial struggles internationally. They're very closely related with the Palestinian cause. They they were supportive strongly of the South African anti-apartheid movement. Uh, And uh, a lot of credit has to be given to Sinn Féin for articulating a kind of um, nationalism in Ireland which uh, saw itself as part of uh, anti-imperial, anti-colonial struggles internationally. Um, also, Ireland has has had that because of the objective conditions historically. I think that those conditions have, have changed now. Ireland is now an advanced capitalist country. But historically, uh, Ireland obviously was a colony. Uh, it, it's, as we're now sitting here in the, the centenary of the Easter Rising, uh, it was a, a country that won what limited freedom it got through resistance to British rule. Uh, And this made its uh, nationalism of a different variety than those of the imperial states in Europe, of of France and of Germany and so on. States that, uh, and and Britain as well, obviously, uh, states where nationalism is much more clearly identified with a kind of chauvinism and uh, imperial intention. That's one reason. I think another reason is uh, the kind of very strong work that has been done on the Irish uh, anti-racist space towards building a kind of uh, identity around uh, being Irish which has been open to the large numbers of Eastern Europeans and Africans who've come into the country since the 1990s and early 2000s. Ireland actually now has a larger percentage of its population uh, residing here who are not born here than either France or the United Kingdom. And yet, we managed not to have a far right movement, which is a, which is a, a, a strong and impressive uh, achievement. Uh, some of this is down to clearly uh, having had economic progress for a long period of 2008, but a lot of it is also down to the really excellent anti-racist work done by the, uh, the Irish left and the Irish anti-racist movement. Um, I would put a couple of important points to this, though. Uh, one is that we have had very serious blemishes on this on this record. Uh, the citizenship referendum, uh, which happened about 12 years ago, uh, which took away birthright citizenship from those born in Ireland, was, was uh, fought on a racist basis against this idea that migrants are coming into the country uh, to have children to get Irish uh, nationality and yeah. citizenship. Uh, that was... Uh, a real, you know, that was a racist campaign and it won. Um, and so we have to accept that, that what, what the results of that are very problematic in terms of racism in Ireland. Yeah. We also have direct, the direct provision system um, where uh, asylum seekers and refugees who come into Ireland are housed in facilities that are uh, extremely poor that have been criticised by international human rights organisations, uh, often for many, many years, held in a kind of limbo, without the right to work. Um, and that is another real problem that the anti-racist movement here has to fight. And finally, it speaks to another broader one, which is you know, Ireland is stuck out here in the Atlantic as an island and hasn't been touched in the same way as some of the other European countries by the migration crisis. Our government has decided... Um, not to take any significant number of refugees from Syria, Afghanistan, the other countries in the Middle East, and 
the result of that uh, is that that has been kept in some way out of the popular discourse and it wasn't a factor in this election. But uh, that is something that we have to challenge because Ireland has a, has a responsibility uh, to these people, uh, especially as a country that has had disasters such as famines that have forced us to emigrate in the past, um, to take in a lot more of those who are, who are uh, suffering in, in places like Syria and Afghanistan. Um, so, as you mentioned, we are sitting here on, well, we're on the 100th anniversary of the Easter Rising. Um, for people who don't know, give us a, a brief rundown of what that was and why, despite the fact that it was unsuccessful, it's still so important to the Irish people. The Easter Rising was a rising of... Uh, a small number of nationalists, republicans, socialists uh, against British rule in Ireland in 1916. Uh, it came about uh, out of a long history of resistance to British rule in Ireland, which had various different components. Most specifically, 1916 came about because uh, of the conditions of the First World War, which had uh, the, the kind of... Uh, bourgeois nationalist or mainstream nationalist traditions who were trying to win only a small amount of separation from Britain had advocated that uh, a lot of uh, you know their, their volunteers in the in the Irish volunteer force went, went to fight with Britain in the war uh, and a lot of people were opposed to that those most specifically were the Republicans and the Socialists who stayed behind and said the best way uh, to win Irish independence was to strike at, at Britain in Ireland and they did uh, there was a, a range of people involved from cultural nationalist figures to more down the line Republicans uh, who were looking for independence uh, to socialist figures like James Connolly and his citizen army which was a, a workers militia which was one of the three forces uh, that fought in the uh, in the uprising in April of uh, 1916 uh, it was a hugely important moment it kicked off a period that led to the creation uh, of an independent uh, Irish state over time it was not the state I think it's very important that we say this uh, that was fought for in 1916 or by a lot of the progressive forces at that time. There was a profound counter-revolution that, that came up against uh, that those forces in the 1920s through the Civil War and the foundation of the Free State, uh, which led to a kind of a falling away of the progressive aspirations at that time. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it did lead to the creation of, uh, of a degree of independence for the 26 counties in Ireland. Uh, and it also inspired uh, anti-imperialist and anti-colonial struggles elsewhere who saw this as a kind of a first strike against, uh, against the British Empire for independence uh, and national liberation. And Connolly, actually, uh, who died in, uh, as a result of execution after the, the failure of the uprising, um, had predicted this before when he said, you know, uh, that a, a child with a pin uh, pricking empire in its heart could have more impact than um, all those swinging around it. Uh, and that Ireland's proximity to Britain as the first colony and as the colony next door in standing up against British imperialism would have a, a deep and profound effect uh, on the other colonies, and that, and that proved to be the case. Um, so. Tell us a little bit about the, a little bit more about Connolly and the specifically the Citizen Army and where that came out of. Because I think that'll be interesting yeah, to so, our, so our labour listeners. Ireland has a long, uh, at, that, at that stage, uh, this was a kind of a long revolution, um, and it has to be understood through the development of syndicalism and Larkinism in Ireland. This is actually uh, something that was influenced very strongly by the labour movement in America. 
um, both Larkin, who was uh, Jim Larkin, who was a historic Labour leader in Ireland, and James Connolly, uh, were influenced by the Wobblies, and uh, they brought in the uh, early, the first decade, uh, the end of the first decade of the 1900s, and into the, the second decade, they brought a kind of syndicalist organising to Ireland, uh, to this newly developing. Uh, working class uh, in Irish cities, which had a long period leading up to uh, 1913, which was the big standoff between uh, Jim Larkin's Transport and General Workers Union and uh, William Martin Murphy, who was the leader of the capitalists, uh, the, the bosses in, in Dublin. Uh, and that involved tens of thousands of workers being locked out for, for months uh, from their jobs for fighting for union recognition and a profound social battle in, in Dublin, which ultimately the workers lost, but which produced uh, a lot of conditions that led to uh, the 1916 rising one of which was the creation of a workers' militia to defend uh, striking workers, which happened in 1914, and that was the Irish Citizen Army. Uh, and the Irish Citizen Army was a, a really a profoundly progressive force. It was, uh, it, it was fought on the basis that women and men were equal in, in, in the army. Uh, its constitution pledged it to defend the democracies of all the nations of the world, um, and it was clearly working class. It was aligned to the workers' movement to defend strikes and to make sure that workers had the freedom against both the, uh, the police and you know, organized reactionary groups uh, to fight for their rights. And, and that citizen army uh, became one of the three forces, along with the Irish Volunteers uh, and the Comanaman, which was a, a women's auxiliary, uh, which fought in the 1916 Rising. James Connolly is a figure is probably most important out of Second International Marxism because he synthesised the politics of national liberation and socialism, and uh, spoke about you know if you. Uh, move the English army and raise the green flag tomorrow unless you build a socialist republic your efforts will have been in vain comments which I think uh, very clearly resonate to a lot of Irish people today after the profound reaction that we saw um, from the kind of conservative uh, nationalists uh, in, the, in the Irish free state um, his role in Irish politics he's still very important he's kind of understood to have been the most progressive of the signatories of the 1916 proclamation his face and his words adorn um, a lot of the most progressive elements of the commemoration period um, but also there's a struggle over what his legacy means You know, there are those who would quite happily fold him into a, a narrow tradition of nationalism that says Ireland got a 26 county state or even Ireland could have a 32 county state um, and that would be enough whereas those of us on the left are very clear in picking up his words about socialism and saying uh, that we, what we need is a, a state that has uh, democratic control over uh, its economy where uh, the people uh, can exercise some degree of sovereignty not just through having some, a national parliament but through having self-determination in their day-to-day -day lives uh, controlling the places they work controlling the places that they live um, and also a struggle which Connolly was very strong on and which still remains to be fought in Ireland uh, for women's emancipation, for the, uh, the, the right of women to, uh, to control uh, their bodies and their lives, uh, to have equality in society. Um, and Connolly was renowned really at his time uh, for, uh, for being uh, very strong on that, on that question. He famously said, uh, the workers, the uh, slave of the capitalists, and the woman workers, the slave of that slave. And uh, that uh, was very clearly borne out in the Irish Free State in the decades uh, after it had a degree of independence uh, and is a 
struggle that remains so far. And finally, if people have enjoyed listening to you, um, tell us about the Jacobin issue that you edited. Yeah, so we have an Irish issue of Jacobin um, around the centenary of 1916, uh, which is going to be coming out in April. Uh, it looks both at the revolutionary period, a kind of people's history of the revolutionary period, focusing on uh, the labour and feminist struggles at that time, looking at the, the wave of Soviets that happened in Ireland between 1919 and 1922, over a 100 uh, instances of workers taking control of the places that they worked, uh, erecting the red flags and arguing that self-determination meant more than uh, some kind of national uh, identity, that it meant really having control over their lives. Uh, we also look at the failure of those aspirations and feet of those aspirations in the, in the free state, uh, the reaction which led to the creation of the Magdalene Laundries, a kind of moralisation um, of poverty as opposed to dealing with it, as con people like Connolly would have argued, through uh, programmes of redistribution and uh, that, that lifted the working class up. Uh, we look at the effects uh, in that section as well of the Catholic Church in the Irish Free State, uh, its attack uh, on its attacks on the left and progressive politics, the kind of ideology it mobilised uh, to uh, fight against progressive causes, the anti-modernism of the church, its resistance to social democracy and to state-funded welfare programs, its favouring of uh, church and charity as, as uh, a means of dealing with social problems like poverty, and its reactionary positions on the women's question, the LGBT movement, and so on. Um, and then we finish up with a discussion of the, the current uh, position for the Irish left to debate between Ono Brin, who's a newly elected Sinn Féin TD, uh, arguing what, about what Sinn Féin's uh, view is of a, a potential progressive Ireland uh, and a new republic into the future uh, and Dan Finn who's the deputy editor of the New Left Review who, who uh, polemicises against Sinn Féin and, and highlights some of their limitations as a, as a left wing force uh, particularly as it relates to their willingness to, to favour nationalism over, over socialism so um, that's available on jacobinmag.com people can find it there uh, and we'd be delighted uh, to see people in the United States uh, picking up that question of what the Irish revolution 100 years ago meant um, and relating also to the politics in Ireland in the 21st century. And that was Ronan Burtonshaw speaking about Irish politics and what it has to do with the Easter Rising of 100 years ago. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that, where we bring you the select pieces that we wish we had written but did not. My ARG for the week is The Myth of the Progressive Capitalist by Paul Blessed in Jacobin. It's a ground-level view of the dirty politicking behind North Carolina's notorious so-called bathroom bill, or HB2, which purports to regulate the use of public bathroom facilities, but effectively craps all over the Bill of Rights by forcing people to use public restrooms according to the gender assigned at birth, thereby blocking transgender people's access to a basic public facility according to their actual gender identity. The legislation has been assailed for gutting workplace protections against discrimination broadly on the state level, 
But the political issue at the forefront of the debate isn't so much the technical rules, but the political fallout. There have been mounting calls across the country to boycott, stop trading with, essentially economically sanction North Carolina for this affront to justice. And it's all coming from some big names like uh, Tim Cook of Apple and uh, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg. So what's with all these corporate do-gooders rising to the occasion all of a sudden? Well, bless basic argument is that all the corporations that have seemed to be at the forefront of this progressive backlash are actually engaged in a bit of political theater. It's been branded by corporations seeking to polish their social responsibility bona fides. But if you follow the money, they effectively helped foment the political crisis that they are now supposedly rising up against. I quote, some of the very companies that signed on to the human rights campaign's open letter against the bill are partially to blame for HB2 passing in the first place. According to the Institute for Southern Studies, 36 of the companies donated to Republican State Leadership Committee and the Republican Governors Association, contributing over $4.3 million to the RSLC and nearly $6.5 million to the uh, RGA since the 2010 election. Uh, that includes Pfizer, Citigroup, Hewlett-Packard, Microsoft, Google, Yahoo, and he writes uh, the RSLC then turned around and donated over $1.5 million to the North Carolina-based super PAC Real Jobs North Carolina in 2010 and 2012. Real Jobs, true to form, devoted nearly $2.4 million to winning or retaining 27 legislative seats. Those legislators then voted in HB2, and in 2012, the RGA shelled out nearly $5 million to help elect McCrory, the policymaker who helped champion the bill. So why would these ostensibly progressively-minded corporations bankroll the legislators and the governor that they are now admonishing? In short, blessed rights, money. So this whole ordeal is perhaps not terribly surprising, but the pernicious aspect is that the response of the corporations in the public sphere to the legislation completely embodies the hypocrisy of the so-called good capitalist. The idea that corporations act purely out of moral interest is uh, sort of dissolved here. But think about the motivation behind this form of transactional politics. It turns out that for a little campaign cash, the companies got to feed from the trow of North Carolina's fiscal largesse. So, um, you know, it's not like they were all raging homophobes, but rather the Republicans that they helped elect had something else to offer them, namely corporate welfare and generous tax breaks, which are, of course, uh, supposed to attract business, but often comes at the price of gutting state revenues that could be otherwise spent on silly things like, you know, social needs. So instead, companies got to hoard more of their money instead of paying taxes and in turn built up a nice little reserve for plowing yet more donations into future conservative lawmakers who would pass future egregious bills. Uh, some of them would be outright you know, displays of bigotry such as HB2 and others would keep their corporate friends happy. Pick your poison, I guess. Skeptics may say, oh, well, we knew that already. What really matters is that these companies come out and feed into the public shaming of North Carolina. Fair enough. I guess it helps when Tim Cook speaks out about such things. And of course, that could really help sway public opinion. But again, the advantage still accrues to the company. The company gets the shiny accolades for standing up to the man, you know, the, the other man, and the movements on the ground that have actually been mobilizing against this bill and others like it from the get-go are just sort of shunted into the shadows. 
Bless notes that there is another way to fight odious legislation such as HB2, and it doesn't cost one corporate dime. He argues the solution, as always, is to mobilize and build power from below. So the massive public backlash didn't come from corporate headquarters. It came from street demonstrations led by uh, the Black Lives Matter North Carolina movement, for instance, and uh, the other leaders of faith and community groups that brought their people out into the streets. And they, they didn't do it for money. They did it because they believed in what they were protesting about. Um, Blessed Again writes, uh, the fight for a progressive North Carolina will have to be forged at the ballot box and in the streets. Together, average North Carolinians can achieve what 100 CEOs never could, genuine social justice. Now, the issue of authenticity matters here. You don't want your champion cause, even if it's great that Mark Zuckerberg is championing your cause, you, you don't want your uh, credu to be cheapened by corporations that are looking out primarily for their own self-interest. And, of course, frankly, you can't be blamed if you've cynically come to view state politics as a stage-managed performance of powerful interests, and you might feel occasionally tempted to go along. After all, it's not very often that activists can get even one-tenth of the airtime that Mark Zuckerberg gets when he posts a Facebook update. So if you can get him on your side, well, that can be powerful. But power also has a darker side. And the thing is, Such cynicism can lead us into the self-fulfilling prophecy in which gradually the only voices who bother speaking up, the only voices we bother investing in, are the ones that are backed by enough money to essentially rent a spot at the podium until the next flavor of the week issue comes around. And even if they occasionally say the right thing, corporations can never really substitute for democratic voices. That requires real people. And if the real people in the street have got nothing to sell other than the truth, and that means they can't be bought. Welfare reform just keeps coming up this election season, and it seems to be making Bill Clinton a little testy. After all, quote, ending welfare as we know it was supposed to be part of his legacy. It's just not fair that journalists and protesters keep pointing out that it, well, dumped a lot of people back into poverty. There were a lot of good pieces written after Bill's latest tantrum on the subject of welfare reform and mass incarceration when protests at a campaign rally for Hillary Clinton in Philadelphia had the temerity to show up and question the legacy of Bill's work on those subjects and their effects particularly on black Americans. The one I really wanted to highlight, though, is from the Huffington Post by reporter Zach Carter, and it is titled, Nothing Bill Clinton Said to Defend His Welfare Reform is True. The title kind of says it all, but just in case you weren't convinced, Carter methodically goes through the effects of welfare reform and its connections to the recessions of the 2000s and their connections to another of Bill Clinton's signature achievements. You should picture me making really big air scare quotes around the word achievements here. uh, Financial deregulation. But we'll just leave aside the Clinton deregulation's role in creating the 2008 financial crisis for a moment and focus instead on what welfare reform did. As Carter explains, welfare reform was designed from the start to kick people off of the welfare rolls, yet Clinton's defense of himself, and by proxy, of course, his wife and her presidential campaign, was that it was all Republicans' fault. Carter writes, quote, That is an astonishing claim for a bill that, again, was literally designed to kick people off welfare rolls. Clinton turned over the federal government's budgeting authority for welfare to the states and now has the audacity to argue that he couldn't have expected them to slash funding. What, then, was the purpose of handing them budgetary power? Clinton's signing day rhetoric about dependency and responsibility is eerily similar to Paul Ryan's 2012 poverty-shaming language about the social safety net becoming a hammock. 
People who receive government assistance are lazy, the argument goes. It has nothing to do with a society that systematically just denies them economic opportunities and financial security. At least Paul Ryan has apologized. It is an interesting election season this year, of course, where old issues like welfare reform wind up coming back to haunt the politicians who assumed that kicking poor women, presumed to be, though certainly not entirely women of color, was a safe way to garner bipartisan credibility. And so cheers to the reporters out there who are making sure that we know that welfare reform was not a failure. It worked as intended, and its intended consequences were to remove income supports from poor people and force them to take lousy jobs. That is all for today's episode. Thank you for sticking with us for over 100 episodes. To thank you for your support, we now have belabored tote bags. Yes, you heard it right. If you sign up to be a supporting member of the show at the $5 or $10 monthly level, we will send you a very excellent belabored tote bag. We're getting very public radio over here. Uh, Seriously, though, we we couldn't do it without you listening. Um, If you are a Verizon worker or fighting for 15, if you work in Wisconsin in the public or private sector, if you're in Ireland or have connections to the rising or got kicked off of welfare rolls by Bill Clinton, we want to hear from you. Belabored at DissentMagazine.org, or you can tweet at us at hashtag Belabored. You will find links to everything we've discussed today at the Dissent website, as well as the link to become a Belabored member or give a one-time donation. Thank you for being with us. And we'll be back in two weeks. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, if I, hell no, we can't go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.